0: I'm going to throw a little bit of a change up this morning. I ask you to turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We will return to uh, Romans chapter 8 tonight. um, There we will see the wonderful and mysterious doctrine that Paul teaches about the help of the Holy Spirit... We will learn about how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This morning I want to take us in a little bit of a different direction. Increasingly we see that the church of Christ in this world is under attack. On November 3rd, North Korea publicly executed 80 people because they either possessed a Bible or because they had watched a Christian film. Now we learn that 33 more Christians are scheduled for execution in North Korea because they had contact with a Baptist missionary who was seeking to plant churches in North Korea. Some estimate that as many as 70,000, 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned in North Korea's horrendous labor camps. I want to read to you just some of the other headlines and reports concerning the persecution of Christians from just three days. I was putting this together on Wednesday. I looked at headlines from this past Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. They included these. In Laos, village chief attempts to ban Christian faith and expel Christian families. In Pakistan, Christian Asia Bibi in high court over death sentence. In Somalia... Islamists behead two Christian women. In Iran, prison authorities seize Christian prisoners' Bible in Crimea. Priest kidnapped by pro-Russian forces. In Belarus, homeless shelter shut down because they had a prayer room. In Nigeria, More than a hundred Christians, including a pastor and his family, killed in village attacks by Muslim herders. In Burma, more than 60 churches burned to the ground. In Syria, Christians have now been given three choices. Either convert to Islam, pay a tax and become second-class citizens, or be killed. And this past week, Christian leaders came together and signed an agreement in Syria that all Christians in that country will pay a special tax to be allowed to stay in that country and they will have less rights than other citizens in that nation. Dear friends, these stories roll in one after another all the time. And these are are only the ones that we actually hear about. Christians around this world are under attack Christianity is under attack but at the end of the day it isn't really Christians and it isn't really Christianity that is the target it is Christ himself our world is in spiritual darkness and though the world doesn't realize it Satan is at work in earthly powers. Satan's goal is to destroy the gospel of Christ and the people of Christ and thereby to cast into the dust the glory of Christ. Jesus is the great enemy of Satan and Christians are the ones caught in Satan's crosshairs As he wages his war. We see what is happening in our own land. We are certainly no North Korea. We have much to be grateful for. Here in the United States. But we would be foolish not to notice how quickly things seem to be changing. They are changing rapidly. Our secular culture is becoming increasingly secular and increasingly hostile to the things of God. Under the banner of tolerance, our culture is losing its tolerance for Christians and for Christian values. Christian truth and Christian values are mocked, demeaned, even called evil in the public square. Christians are being told they must either violate their consciences... Or close their businesses. Christian organizations on college campuses are being told that if they refuse to allow homosexuals into leadership positions, they cannot operate officially on campus. I fear that in coming days we may find ourselves in a culture that considers preaching the truth about morality, hate speech. The rights of parents to give their children a Christian worldview are increasingly being infringed upon. I think that Christians will find themselves misrepresented and misunderstood in this culture, increasingly so. Because this world, our society, is seeing this world through a very different lens than we are. They're coming from a very different perspective. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, church. There is a spiritual warfare taking place. This morning I have a message for all of those who would treat the children of God with carelessness. I have a message for all of those who would seek to be hostile or demeaning towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I've entitled this sermon, A Message for North Korea... Iran, our U.S. leaders, and you. This message I have is not about some weak God who is desperate for you to love him. This is a message about a sovereign God before whom we all are as grains of sand. And the message I have is this. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Pay homage to the Lord Jesus Christ. Treat King Jesus with the reverence He deserves. Stop persecuting His people or demeaning His laws. Because His wrath is quickly kindled. There are a lot of people talking today about being on the right side of history can't tell you how many politicians in recent days I've heard say that they now support gay marriage because they want to be on the right side of history. Well, dear friends, we know how the history of this world is going to end. And if you want to be on the right side of history, you had better be on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a message calling all people everywhere, including every nation, and including all of us, to repent and turn to the Lord. Let's read Psalm 2 together. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 1 at the beginning of our Psalms conference. We noticed that there was no indication in Psalm 1 of who wrote that psalm And the same is true with Psalm 2. However, since Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction for the first book of Psalms, and remember, book 1 of the Psalms uh, is Psalms 1 through 41, and since every psalm from Psalm 3 through Psalm 41 says that David was the author of those psalms, we have good reason to assume that these first two, including Psalm 2, was written by David. Psalm 2 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, Psalm 2 is all about God's plan to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord over all and to give Him possession of the whole earth. Though God has many enemies who may rebel against Him and want to break free from His rule, God's Son will be given authority to come and bring judgment upon them. Friend, Psalm 2 is a very sobering psalm. It is a psalm that focuses on the power and the might of Christ and the utter foolishness of trying to stand against Him. Let me say that again. This psalm reveals the foolishness of being against the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon called Psalm 2 the Psalm of the Messiah Prince. Another title might be the Coronation Psalm. And I think you'll see why as we go along. Now yes, on one level, Psalm 2 is about David. David is a king that God set over Israel. Our passage speaks of a son ...to whom God gives dominion. And there is a real sense in which God made David like a son to him. And David had many enemies... ...and God promised to exalt David over his enemies. This psalm could be taken as a warning to the nations in David's day... ...that they had better treat the nation of Israel with care. But there are several places in the psalm where it is clear... ...that there must be someone greater than David... In view the king of this psalm is one to whom the ends of the earth are promised this king has such power that we are told he will be able to dash the nations of the earth into pieces like a potter's vessel we are told that all other kings owe their submission and obedience to this king he is a king of kings Unless there be any doubt, we have Hebrews 1 verse 5 making clear to us that with our New Testament glasses on, we cannot help but see Psalm 2 as being about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the outline of the Psalm is easy to follow. There are four parts, and each part is three verses. Part 1, verses 1 through 3, are about the rebellion of the nations against God's rule. The second part, verses 4 through 6, are about God's response to the rebellion of the nations. Part 3, verses 7 through 9, are the words of Christ himself about his own exaltation. And then part 4, verses 10 through 12, are a gospel call to stop rebelling against this king and to instead serve him. So, what we're going to do is just quickly look at each section and draw out the main truth. From each section. Number one, let's look at verses one through three again. Verses one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What is the main truth taught here? It is that the nations hate the rule of God. In verse 1, David is standing back in wonder at what he is seeing. Why are the nations raging against the true God? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Is God not a good God? Is God not a just and righteous God? Not only that, but David wonders at the fact that these people actually think that they can devise some plot that would actually usurp God's sovereignty. The peoples of the world are being led by their kings and their rulers to rebel against God. They see God's rule as chains that they want to break free from. They don't want to submit to God and they don't want to submit to his anointed king, Jesus Christ. Mount Herman, is this not what we see in our own day? How many even in our own nation want to break from God's rules so they can live how they want to live? And how often are our political leaders working to bring that about? All people are called to worship God alone. You shall have no other gods before me, God said. And yet pluralism reigns in this country. Our own president participates one week in observing a Christian holiday and then another week takes part in a Jewish Seder and then yet another week observes Ramadan and then yet on another week celebrated elements of Hinduism to show his camaraderie with each religion as if they're all equally valid. The intellectual elite in our nation scoff at the idea of one way of salvation Surely each person must find his own way to spiritual peace, they say. People want to be free to use their bodies in ways that God has not permitted. Adultery is no longer seen as a great sin in our land, nor is sex before marriage. Rather, these have become somewhat accepted, especially the latter. Gone are the days when there were legal consequences to such things. We destroy innocent blood through abortion. We reward and celebrate and give honors to actors and musicians who glorify immorality and constantly push against the boundaries of the Word of God. We practice injustice by rewarding those who don't work and overly burdening those that do. What generation before ours would have called pornography Is now openly displayed in the windows of the stores at our mall. Greed is called good. We call evil good and good evil. All of this is an attempt, a human nature attempt to throw off the rule of God. Let us break their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's not just an attack against morality. It is a futile attempt to burst God's bonds upon us apart. I don't think I need to say much more about North Korea or China or Venezuela or other nations where the people are actually being led to deny the very existence of God. These nations that have atheism written into their very constitution, written into their laws... In Muslim countries acknowledging the true God and the rule of his son Jesus is often followed by a swift and heavy punishment. When we look at the world and the societies that make it up, apart from the church, we see a world raging against God and against his son. Why was Satan cast down from heaven? Because he hated the rule of God. And now all humanity is following in his steps. When Jesus appeared on earth, what kind of reception did he receive? Herod tried to kill him at his birth. Pilate, the Roman officials, the Jewish religious leaders, others conspired against him. The rest of the New Testament teaches that the body of Christ, the church... Can expect to have entire nations opposed to us and hating us until the day that Christ returns. Revelation seems to teach that some of these will be very powerful nations who will do great physical harm to the people of God. The nations rage. But then, second, look at verses four through six and how God responds. To all these who want to usurp God's rule. Beginning in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens. Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury. Saying as for me. I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. How does God respond to this rebellion? He responds in righteous wrath. He who sits in heaven laughs. Now, before we get to the laughs part, don't miss the first part. He who sits in heaven. Think about where God sits. This isn't a king or a president or a prime minister who resides in some fancy house here on earth this is a God who sits in heaven who can overthrow him there how are you going to usurp his rule how are you going to take him off of his throne the picture is of God looking down from heaven on all of these futile efforts that are silly they are silly to him what ridiculousness. It's like you looking down on an ant and thinking that ant might overthrow you. You know better. Such is God's confidence that He is not worried. God is not for one moment afraid that His rule is in danger. No, He laughs. We are told that He will speak in His wrath and He will terrify the nations in His fury. He will speak in his wrath. God's judgment will come in words. And what are these words that are so dreadful to God's opponents? Here are the words through which God terrifies the world. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now verse 5 says that God will speak those words because this was written before the time of Jesus. But dear church, we live after the coming of Jesus. God has spoken these words. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Jesus is right now the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And for the humble who look to Jesus in faith, this fact that all authority and power has been given to Him is a glorious thing, that our Savior is a strong Savior that comforts us, that encourages us, but for the prideful, but for those who refuse to submit to Christ, the fact that He is now wielding the very power of God ought to terrify them. Here is the warning to our president, to our representatives, to our senators, to our Supreme Court justices. There is a higher authority and a higher power. And if they do not submit to him, he will judge them accordingly. And so it is for every nation. And so it is for every individual, including you and me. What is Zion? We are told that God set his king on Zion, his holy hill. Zion is a hill in Jerusalem. It's where David reigned, but that was just the shadow. In the New Testament, we learn that Zion is the kingdom of God, specifically the people of God. Jesus has been exalted as king over his own kingdom, the church. And just like in the Old Testament, there was this warning Nations, beware how you treat Israel. Israel was God's nation. So in the New Testament, we hear the church is Zion. You better be careful how you treat God's children. When will Jesus bring God's judgment upon the world? It will happen when he returns again. It is at the second coming of Christ that Jesus will return, not as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, but as a splendid warrior. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, many crowns, because he is the king of kings. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Sound familiar? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Why does God sit in heaven and laugh? He knows how humanity's rebellion is going to end. Here is the end of the story for this cursed world. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead and the souls of the wicked will be cast into eternal punishment and the glory of God's name will be vindicated for all eternity. Number three. In verse three we heard wicked leaders of men speaking In verse 6, we heard God the Father speaking, but we come to verse 7, and Jesus himself steps forward to speak. Here's what Jesus says in verses 7, 8, and 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus Christ has been exalted over all and we learn here of the decree of God by which this took place. God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In ancient pagan cultures, a king was often seen as a son of the gods. Kings often claimed divinity this way. In Israel, kings were also referred to as a son of God. But those kings were not divine. They were just divinely appointed to carry out God's leadership of the people. You see, the picture in verse 7 is a picture of a king's coronation day. The picture in verse 7 is the day of somebody being exalted to his throne. And God's word to David and to other future kings of Israel was that their coronation was in a sense their birthday. It was the day when they were made sons of God to carry out his rule. But when we see this psalm applied to Jesus, the day being portrayed is the day of his ascension into heaven and his exaltation over all things. It's the day that Jesus went into the holy of holies of heaven, not just as God, but as God-man, and He took His seat on the throne. This is why Romans 1 says that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. The idea is that at the resurrection, Jesus Christ was appointed by God, what He had already been in His divinity, but now what He was is a God-man. King of kings and Lord of lords. He was given a name above all names so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Notice what God gives to His Son. Over what shall Jesus have dominion? Everything. What does God give to His Son? Absolutely everything. The entire earth Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. There will not be one square inch in all reality over which Jesus will not be able to say, mine. A.W. Tozer or Pink, I can't remember. I don't want you to think I came up with that. That's what Jesus says. It's all mine, all given to me by my Father. God is not just here speaking of giving Jesus Christ the church though he does give to Jesus Christ the church people from every tongue tribe and nation but no God gives to Jesus the whole planet every person on planet earth is under the authority of Jesus Christ he is your Lord you don't make him Lord he is Lord the question is whether or not you respond to him that way He is a good king. He is the best king. He is a far better ruler than you or I could ever be. He is the kind of king that dies to save people in his kingdom. But he is king. And he has been entrusted with the sacred stewardship of ruling appropriately. And what does ruling a kingdom appropriately require? Well, when the nations that are underneath his authority are raging and rebelling, he must respond in justice. And we're told that includes breaking them and dashing them into pieces. Jesus is going to execute judgment against the wicked, and he is not a weak king. This will not be a weak punishment nor will it be an unjust punishment. Jesus wields the rod of justice well, and He will bring the rebellious to their proper end. And then finally, the fourth section, in light of all of these truths about Jesus being appointed as King over all things to execute God's judgment against those who rage and rebel, David has some advice. David has some common-sense advice, especially for leaders, especially for kings and rulers, but ultimately for all of us. Here's his advice in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, in light of everything I've said, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in, here, in Him. The, the lesson here is summed up in that last line. What is the wise thing to do in light of King Jesus ruling over all? It is to bow to Him. And to take refuge in him. The psalm ends on a gospel note. In fact, all of Psalm 2 is a gospel presentation. The sinfulness of man was taught in the first three verses. The judgment that man deserves was taught in the second three verses. That Christ is the appointed King and Messiah is taught in the third three verses. And now in the fourth section, we have this call to take Him as our refuge. You can evangelize with Psalm 2. It's a gospel presentation. When our passage says that the rulers of this world should kiss the sun, you should picture the dukes and the earls of a kingdom bowing before their king, kissing the signet ring on his hand as a show of devotion. But what is really being taught here is that the leaders of this world should submit themselves to Christ with heartfelt devotion and submission. I fear somebody who is in power who doesn't know what it is to submit to a higher power. As long as we have people in authority who do not know what it is to submit to a higher authority, we are in trouble. We are not just to submit to Jesus outwardly while our hearts harbor hostility towards Him. We are to submit to Him from the heart. Yes, let His awesome power cause you to have some fear and trembling in your soul. But notice that we should have some rejoicing mixed in as well. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Happy are those, favored are those, who stop rebelling against King Jesus, bow themselves in the dust, kiss His hand, and love Him. Rejoice even as you tremble a bit. Is that where you are, Christian? Do you know what it is to rejoice in King Jesus even as you tremble a bit? And don't lose the trembling. You lose the trembling, you end up with a little Jesus that can't do much good for you. You want a Jesus that you can love, that you can praise, that you can adore. He's your bridegroom. He's the lover of your soul. He's your dearest friend. And he's also King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are as a speck of dust before him. Let's hold those together in our hearts and minds if you take one and not the other we belittle the glory of Jesus Christ now real quickly some people stumble over the fact that it says that his wrath is quickly kindled his wrath is quickly kindled and they say wait a minute I thought God is slow to anger I I thought the Bible says that that God is is slow to anger. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. So what does it mean that Jesus' wrath is quickly kindled? Well, I think I would take it this way. There's a difference between your wrath being kindled and your wrath being expressed. Every sin committed against God immediately kindles His anger and wrath. He is patient in expressing it. But, O nations and O kings and O rulers and O people of Mount Hermon, be warned. If you do not trust and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, every sin you've ever committed will be fully judged on the last day. There is a kindling of God's wrath that remains, that will be expressed for you at the end, expressed upon you. Not so if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, all of God's wrath against every sin you've ever committed was poured out by on, on Christ at the cross. But if you're not a Christian, every sin that you commit every moment is noticed by God. Not one is missed. And everyone kindles His righteous anger. And everyone is being stored up be rightly judged at the end of all things. Remember the Ammonites in Genesis? And God told Abraham, eventually I'm going to remove these Ammonites from the promised land, but not yet. So the Ammonites are Amalekites. I apologize if I got it wrong. But whichever one it was, God said, when the cup of their iniquity is full, I will judge them. Folks, Every day that you live not submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ is a day that the cup of your iniquity is becoming a little more filled. And when it is full, the Son of God will do what any good king will do. He will bring justice. Let me close very quickly with three points of application. Number one, consider how this passage should affect your prayer life. It teaches you to pray for yourself, that you would honor the Son and not rebel against Him. It tells you not to put yourself in a, in a dangerous place where you are rebelling against King Jesus. And so you should pray for your own heart. You should pray that you would not be deceived and led astray into having low thoughts of Jesus. But I think mainly this passage teaches us how important it is that we pray for our leaders and for those in high places. We should pray for the leaders of our city, and we should pray for the leaders of our state, and we should pray for the leaders of our nation. We should pray for the leaders of distant countries. We should pray even for wicked leaders. You should pray for Kim Jong-un's salvation. And if God will not save him, pray for his death, for the sake of God's people in that land. Pray that God would raise up leadership in North Korea that will be open to the gospel. Pray for leadership that will stop the brutal persecution of thousands upon thousands of your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Let us be a people who pray for those in high places and let us do that as individuals. Let us do this as families. And when we come together in our corporate prayer times, especially on our prayer meetings, how we ought to pray for those who are in high places that they would submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are hypocrites if we complain about our government and don't pray for our government. Okay? Second, notice how this psalm instructs us about the attitudes we ought to have. Namely, it teaches us that we ought to have a godly awe and fear of Christ. This is not a pathetic Savior that we serve, this is not a little Jesus who needs you to let Him do things. This is a sovereign Lord who holds your fate in His hands. Love your Savior. Cherish Him as the bridegroom and lover of your soul, but never belittle Him. Never have small thoughts of Him. He is not a tame lion. This psalm corrects our attitudes towards sin. This psalm reminds us that we should never treat any sin as a small thing because all sin is against God and all sin is against His Anointed One. No sin is small because the glory of God is not small. There is no such thing as a minor dishonoring of God. There is no such thing as a small belittling of the glory of God. All sin is grievous and therefore we ought to fight every sin that way. This psalm also corrects our attitude towards the injustices that we see in our world. It teaches us to be patient and to have comfort as we see God's people oppressed and persecuted and mocked and beaten and slaughtered. Because all of the injustices that we see today will be made right in their proper time. As you see the world raging against your Savior... Grieve, but do not despair. Jesus' glory will be vindicated. The blood of the martyrs will be avenged. Justice will prevail. And of course, how can you read Psalm 2 and not marvel that this King of Kings and Lord of Lords would be your friend? How can you read Psalm 2 and not be astounded? That the one who wills such power has stooped himself to love you and to care for you and to take your burdens as his burdens and to be the helper and shepherd of your soul. Third, finally, notice how this psalm corrects our worship. Folks, this was a song, this is Psalm 2. This song was to be sung in worship to God. Why do you think God gave his people a song like this to sing? What is the long-term effect on a people when they regularly sing a song like Psalm 2? You see, churches don't sing songs like Psalm 2 anymore. It seems too harsh. It seems too full of the wrath of God. But back when people did used to sing songs like this, there was fear of God before their eyes. And what does Romans 3 say is the root of why there is such depravity in our world. It says there is no fear of God before their eyes. You lose the fear of God, you lose reverence for God. You lose reverence for God, you lose respect for God. You lose respect for God, you rush headlong into any sin you want to rush into because you don't care, you're not worried a God not worthy of being feared is not worthy of being trusted, nor of being loved so dear friends, here is the message of God for North Korea, for Iran, for our U.S. leaders for many more, and for you kiss the son, love him bow to him submit to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Oh, blessed are you if you take refuge in him. Let's be blessed. Let's pray.